Well, hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy, and it is episode 46. <laughs> 46. Woo-woo. So exciting. And we've got a special treat today. We've got somebody that we have literally looked up to and been following for over a decade now. He's an Aussie. He's our very first Aussie. Our very first Aussie. <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah, we're talking about Michael Frost. Yeah, we had such a blast with Michael. You'll be able to hear it through our conversation. Mm-hmm. We were like literally on the edges of our seats, yeah. soaking up every word. It was such a blast to talk with him. Guys, if you don't know Michael Frost, we are really excited to introduce you to him today. Mike is internationally recognized as one of the leading voices in the missional church movement. He's written tons of books and they're required readings at colleges and seminaries all across the world. And he's sought out as a speaker and really a thought leader when it comes to living your life on mission. Today we get to talk with Mike about his latest project, Keep Christianity Weird. Mm -hmm. We just believe so much in the message that he's spreading and think so many of the points that he brings up. He's just dead on with what's going on in our culture and within the church. And I love that he's not just voicing the need for change, he's actually offering some hope and some steps we can take to move towards change, both individually and within our church communities. Yeah, I think Mike is bringing about a conversation that's really, really important. I know for us in our life and a lot of our friends, if you know somebody under the age of 35 in your family and they were part of church growing up, more than likely uh, they may have stepped away from church and their faith and all together. And so this conversation is a very real conversation that we all need to be having. And this concept of Jesus, the ultimate weirdo, and keeping (laughs) Christianity weird is so important. Mm -hmm. I think we miss that with the busyness and the cares of life. And sometimes it's good just to strip it all away, come back and say, hey, who is Jesus and what is he calling us to do? And I believe that is the part of the conversation that we're talking about today with Mike. So without further ado, please welcome, all the way from the future. The future. (laughs) A whole day ahead of us, Mr. Michael Frost. Well, guys, we are here with Mike. We are so honored to have you, man. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be with you guys. It's so bright there. It's very strange that it's nighttime here in the U.S., in Texas, and you're sitting there in broad daylight tomorrow. In the future. In the future. I am speaking to you from your future. So if you want to know, you know like what what the future of the church is like, you know, I, I've, I'm living it. You're, You're living it. there. You're there. Wow. Always ahead. What does our future look Bathed like? Bathed in sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. All right. So that being said, uh, for our listeners who may not know you, take a minute, just share a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Uh, Who am I? I'm Mike Frost, and uh, I guess what I do chiefly is I'm a professor in a a seminary or theological college, a university here in Sydney, which is why I'm speaking from the future, in case any of your listeners didn't kind of get what that was all about. (laughs) Um, uh, So, yeah, born and bred and raised here in Sydney. Uh, I've been teaching. This is my 20th year teaching at at this school. Uh, And then on top of that, I've planted churches. I've written books. I've... uh, I've been involved in uh, um, promoting kind of uh, a missional training movement that's happened right around the world, including your country. There's 15 hubs with this movement called the Forge Mission Training Network. So, yeah, I guess I'm a trainer, teacher, planter, uh, and at a school that's given me lots of freedom to kind of research and dream and kind of sniff the breeze and see what God is, what God is up to. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we've been so impacted by the work you've done. I think mm-hmm. you've written like 12, is it 12 books? 
now? Something Something like that, yeah? (laughs) And that's not counting all the boring (laughs) academic monograms that I... (laughs) <laughs> but I never talk <laughs> that cost eighty dollars and nobody reads. So oh, nice. We'll forget, we'll forget about those. We'll nice. have to look up those later. Yeah. Well, we were trying to think. I think it was like eight years ago yeah. or something. I don't know. I'm not sure how, but somehow we discovered this guy ranting and raving about the missional conversation, and it just blew our minds, and it was wonderful. But I, I think people understand what we say when we say missional, but just for anybody who's new to this conversation, would you just kind of give a brief synopsis of what, what it means to be living on mission and, and what that missional movement means? Well, I mean, the simplest or most kind of shortest definition of mission, I mean, which is a tricky word because it's not in the bible i mean it's a it comes it comes from a latin word not from a greek one so you know if you go looking in the bible for all the references to mission you're not going to find them explicitly mm-hmm. so but the best definition i've heard is from a missiologist in south africa a guy called um david bosch and he said the mission of god's people is to alert everyone everywhere to the universal reign of god through christ it's like that's such a good definition i'm going to say it again it's to alert everyone everywhere to the universal reign of God through Christ. So the two keys to that are firstly like the reign of God. So the mission is mission of God's people is entirely rooted and anchored in a belief that God reigns and that his reign is unfurling inexorably throughout the world and throughout history. So unless there's an absolute and thoroughgoing confidence in the in the unfolding reign of God, it's hard to be missional. And then the other word that I want to pick up on that def- definition was the word alert, because he doesn't say to preach to everyone about the reign of God or he doesn't mm-hmm. say show everyone the reign of God. The word alert is a really well-chosen word because there's a a variety of ways you can alert somebody to something. And that would include explaining it, describing it. It would include like demonstrating, showing it. It would include like uh, uh, showing your appreciation or love or excitement about it. You could alert people to things in a variety of ways. And so I think to be missional is to say that my life, my words, my actions, my affections, my priorities, my desires are that other people might see what the universal reign of God looks like uh, through my example and teaching, insofar as one person can do that. Hopefully all Christians are doing that, and there's a better and broader impression being given of what the reign of God looks like. So to be missional is to believe in the reign of God. I haven't even talked about what that is, but that's more than just what a lot of people imagine it to be. So it's not just the gospel like, you know, Jesus atoned for your sins, repent and give your life to him. I think that's included, but the reign of God includes like justice, reconciliation, beauty, wholeness, like the world made right, everything set together as it was intended to be in the first place, that, that Christ came to begin that process of the healing of the world and the leading of history to its true end and our job is to alert people to that so i'm talking really fast but the bottom line is <laughs> if you if you're saying that you're missional what you're saying is well that mission actually is the kind of the prime mobilizing force in my life and if a church said it was missional what they would be saying is that the mission has become the organizing principle in our church so we you know our worship our life our discipleship our our our, our ways of encouraging one another and being community where we live who we're sent to all of that is shaped around this idea that we're trying to alert others to the reign of god it's good. I think you wrapped that up pretty nicely. <clears throat> so so unpack for us your journey to this place, because 
it is clear that you wholeheartedly believe in this missional idea. What, what you know, what the gospel is saying. You live it out. You speak it. You challenge people. You encourage people. You're pretty bold a lot of times. What was your journey to get to this place where you went, "Yep, this this is for me"? Was there a light bulb moment? Was it years? What was it? Yeah, no, it was years with a few light bulb moments, I suppose. But yeah, look, I I grew up like nominally Catholic and got converted at, you know, campus ministry and typical of someone who gets, feels like really saved from one thing to another. I just became a very obnoxious kind of evangelistic kind of student. I mean, I don't know if you've been through that phase, yeah. but I... Right. <laughs> For sure. Oh, yeah. Right. right. Oh, yeah. And if you have the kind of personality and like you're quite good with words, you end up getting kind of you get to speak at this thing and that thing and the other thing and then eventually someone says oh you're cut out to be a minister because like you know speaking and being sort of a charismatic leader is that's what being a minister is all about apparently and so then you, you end up like at a theological college and then you end up ordained and then you end up a pastor and if you're quite talented in those ways I talked about you end up with a church that's kind of big and growing and so all of that happened to me before I even thought about is this really what I want to be doing and so I went through I mean basically I was in a kind of a a bible belt area here in Sydney not far from Hillsong and Hillsong in those days was just a a normal sized church um (laughs) And a big kind of evangelical, a Presbyterian church. I was in a Baptist church. And, you know, I was just competing with these other churches to keep people in my church or get more people to my church. And um, so that was a sort of a, a dawning realization like, hold on, how did I end up here where I've got to kind of tap dance faster than the people across the road to hang on to my congregation? And, the light bulb moment is not that big of a deal. It's just that uh, this was these were the days before the internet and people could kind of look up who was preaching in which church. So a, like a little convoy of three cars pulled into the parking lot of our church one night and someone from the first car ran over to me. I was at like on the kind of the porch of the, of the church and they said, oh, are you preaching tonight in this church? And I was like, actually, I'm not. There's a guest speaker here. And I kind of tried to pitch how awesome the guest speaker was. And they're like, hey, I don't know. It's okay, but you're not preaching, right? Okay, no worries. And then they got in the car and they did a U-turn and like drove, oh. I don't know, to, to the Presbyterians or to Hillsong or, you know, wow. what And I can remember having this very visceral, like, sense. I was like, dang it, I'm going to preach every Sunday. Mm. And then I immediately, I like my second thought was, that didn't come from the Holy Spirit. Like, it's not like God's not saying to you, Michael, I want you to preach every Sunday. Like, that was like male ego and a spirit competition and fear of failure. And and now I'm not suggesting that one moment was it. There'd just been like this building up to that. But I remember that night thinking, oh, for goodness sake, like, I didn't get into this to like just... outdo the other the other churches in town and so i just quit because i was in my 20s i didn't know anything about mission or remissionalizing or being a change agent i didn't know any of that jazz i was just like i didn't sign up for this and it's drawing on all the worst impulses in my in my soul to kind of be really good at it so um i quit i got a job teaching in a in a community college teaching ideology and sociology 
Uh, I met a guy called Alan Hirsch. We started like sharing kind of reading stuff with us. So basically I read David Bosch, the guy I just quoted before, and Leslie Newbegin, and some American guys like Daryl Guder and uh, George Hunsberger, Lois Barrett, people like that. I just kind of got re-theologized around the kind of mission of God. So, uh, and then Alan and I ended up like, creating a program i mean i became as obnoxiously missional as i'd been obnoxiously evangelistic back at university days right so i felt i'd been like i'd been saved out of this like attractional kind of two-step that i was doing and i just thought i'm going to run around and tell all my colleagues in ministry like you know you could be free from this and, yeah. and they're all just going to follow right i mean all just, <laughs> they're all just going to magically you're not crazy you're actually right and they're all they're all going to thank me yeah, for like right. telling them Right. Yeah. And, and and guess what? Yeah. So um, I've had to go back to some of those more recently and say, look, I still believe all this jazz, but I'm sorry that I basically told you you're wasting your life, you know. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, what happens when inevitably I'm sure you run into that young guy who was you however many years ago and he's going like, I, I went down the exact same track and I'm sitting here. And he's like, what do I do? I got a wife. I got to get a kid. Do you, you encounter, I'm sure you encounter people like that in that wrestle trying to yeah. figure out how to make the move or take a jump like you did. Yeah, I, th- I think less and less, but I used to. Yeah, I think now the kind of missional conversation is becoming more widespread. And so people are going into kind of church planting or church leadership with a kind of a, a missional intent. I mean, it doesn't always work out the way we all want it to, but I'm not meeting so many people who are like, oh my God, like like I was, oh my gosh, I ended up doing something I had no clue this was what it was going to be like. That's less and less the case these days. But you're right, I used to. I definitely used to. And I mean, it was... Um, for sure. There are people that's like, you know, I live in the church house and my kids go to the church school and I drive the church car and I have the church computer. Like, I mean, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I walk away from this, I have nothing, you know. And so it's not so much young guys who have that struggle. It's usually guys in their 40s that are, uh, are really stuck with that. And uh, yeah, it's really like, well, you can just cut, keep working for the man, I suppose, or you can you can make some really scary choices. I'm I'm not uh, being flippant about that, but uh, you just you just got to you got to decide where your priorities are. I mean, I want to I want to say um, in all of that that I do think that God is really present in the brothel and in the pub and mm-hmm. in the football stadium down the road. So of course I think He's present in the local attractional church as well. Right. So this yeah. idea that like well there's nothing going on in your church yeah. get get out and do this uh god is present god is doing so it's not as clear a like black and white choice here for for people i'm I'm sure god will still be present and using you as you shape and teach and lead the congregation that you have but if it's soul destroying if it's like sapping energy from you that's actually godly energy and it's drawing on energy which is like the ones i talked about before like ego competition Mm -hmm. uh, fear of failure those kinds of things you're thinking to yourself how like Jesus is this, and how am I leading people with a with that kind of energy coursing through me? I mean, it's I'm not doing anyone any favors, like operating that way. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's so, so good. good. Thank you. How do you wrestle that down? Yeah, well, when you have I that guess, encounter with yeah. God, you have the light bulb moment. You know, what are some just some practical things? Because people are like, well, I can't really feel like I can't talk to my leadership. I can't talk here. Like, what are some steps? You know, I mean, obviously, there's prayer and there's the Word and there's counsel and those pieces, but is there anything you've seen strategically that have helped people that way? 
Yeah, no, only the sort of stuff that you talk about. I mean, all I did was I just quit. Like, <laughs> I, I think I, I think I had one conversation with my elders, and they were like, "I'm, I'm saying, listen, have you read this? Do you know about these ideas? Have you heard about this stuff?" And they're like, "Nope, nope, nope." And I was like, "Yeah, no, look, I just need to quit." So, um, but I'm not advocating that. Sure, yeah, right. No, it's good. <laughs> I was a kid. I was a kid. Yeah, I, was, you know, yeah. I, I didn't know what I was doing, but, um, but. Some of the really significant renewal moments in the life of the church actually happen when people just quit something yeah. and just like mm -hmm. stepped out of it. And I'm not suggesting that everyone is St. Patrick or that, you know, everyone is, uh, you know, uh, one of the great Anabaptist leaders or one of the early Pentecostal leaders or anything like that. But I mean, um, maybe. Maybe mm -hmm. it takes a, like a radical choice like that. I, I have seen a few too many people who know that that there's problems with what they're doing, who feel compromised in doing it, who do see God in it, but who do sense that God's calling them onto something else. And then they just sit with that compromise on and on and on. And it feels, it feels fright. It feels like they're frightened to me, right. you know, right. uh, and I suspect people that they're ministering to probably pick that up to be quite honest. So yeah, it's all the sort of things. Get spiritual direction. You said prayer, study the scriptures, start to read into the kinds of things that you're exploring, which is what, you know, Alan Hirsch and I did back in the day. We just were like basically a little little reading club, the two of us. So find people who'll go on a journey with you in, in all of that. And um, yeah, get spiritual guidance, get counsel, um, submit yourself to like multiple voices. Um, be real. That's I think what I'm calling on people to do like yeah no no more like bullshit in ministry like just like be legit about what it is that god's calling you to and if you're in a church where it's like i can't be real i can't be honest i can't be open about what i'm going through but then you're in the wrong church like it's yeah it's a scary church so great that you That's had so alan good. so great you guys had each other you know what i mean like <laughs> all right man we're crazy but we're crazy together so sure sure i didn't understand half of what alan was saying but i got <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> at least you had each yeah. for, for people for people who don't know alan he's like a he's like a little genius a little albert einstein guy so yes <laughs> All right, so let's talk about being weird. What does it mean to live weird and keep Christianity weird? Right, so weird does not mean being like obnoxious and like putting on church stunts and like there's lots of that kind of weirdness in church. So actually just those kind of church stunts, that kind of um, craziness, that sort of church zaniness, uh, which I kind of really gives me the heebie-jeebies, but I think sometimes... <laughs> Sometimes it's people trying to kind of get to the real weird, but like stopping short with these kind of church stunts that lots of churches run. So no, not that kind of thing and not obnoxious weird. I mean, weird as in eccentric, I suppose. And uh, in the book, I talk about how the word eccentric comes from two Greek words, which mean off center. So an eccentric person is someone who's a little off-center, and I think most people might know, okay, an off-center person dresses a bit weirdly, has slightly different kind of views and all that kind of stuff. But I interrogate that idea in the book, and I say, well, surely every believer who's accepted Christ into their life puts Jesus at the center of their egos, therefore, like, moves yourself and your own, your own preferences and desires to the side, off-center, like... The whole process of discipleship is to allow Christ to be central and for me to be off-center. 
And so uh, in the book, I say, look, real discipleship is equipping people to be off-center, to be uh, not normal, to be not conventional uh, in the way that Christ wasn't any of those kinds of things. Mm, yeah, that's so good. I love it. All right, so you know, you're, you're playing off this whole concept. People say, keep Austin weird, keep Portland weird, right? We're talking right. about you know, these cities that are, are intentional to, to make sure they're making their mark, they're being weird. How do we as Christians, or maybe what are some of the biggest obstacles you see people of faith facing when it comes to living differently? Suburban values, basically. I mean, like, why does why does Austin have "Keep Austin Weird" as its as its kind of slogan? Because it's trying to be like anti suburbia, and it's, I mean, it's saying like we are going to value eccentricity, uh, arts, uh, culture, music, creative responses to homelessness, uh, sustainable um, food production, uh, local businesses. I mean, we're going to create community, neighborhood, diversity. We're going to value people living close together, the rich, the poor, black, white, Hispanic, uh, the clever and the not so clever, uh, all of us like living together and fashioning what a city might look like. And now let's not uh, pretend that Austin's perfect by any means. And in fact, the other the other city you mentioned was Portland, and it's got lots of problems, even, even though it talks this way. So I'm not saying they've got it, like, let's go be like them. I'm saying those cities are intuiting that there are a lot of people who've been raised in the suburbs and they are tired of suburban values. And suburban values are very easy to spot. Privacy is number one. So we want to be individuals left alone when we want to be. We build houses where you can't even find the front door sometimes. Big double car garage doors at the front. The front door might be down the side of the house or around, tucked around behind the garage. You can't even find your way in. There's no windows at the front. Uh, all the life, all the open space is all at the back. So uh, you put eight-foot fences around the back of, of your house. Like suburbia is a shrine to individualism and particularly to, to privacy. But it's also what is at the center of every single suburban development but a shopping mall. So consumerism is the next one. Like... We shop for entertainment. We're like bored and we think, oh, what will I do now? Let's go to the mall. Let's go buy stuff. Like somehow that's a pastime for us. Let's not go buy food because we're hungry or let's, go, let's not go buy like something because we're, buy clothes because we're naked. It's like, oh, let's just go see what's there and spend stuff. So spending, consumerism, materialism, privacy, individualism, these things have been enshrined in suburbia. What I'm claiming in that book is that for the majority, particularly of evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic churches, is that those churches have emerged out of the suburban experience and are shaped themselves by suburban values, seeking to some degree to resist them, but significantly shaped by them. And so look at your classic mega church or like attractional suburban church. It's like no one will talk to you, like you'll have privacy, individualism, uh, consumerism. They'll pr produce a, a bunch of products for you. They'll tell you that they've got great kids programs for your kids or a men's program for you or a women's program for you. So it's very tailored to needs. It's very oriented around consumption. It values consumerism. It's not connected to place. You often drive right across a whole bunch of other suburbs to get to the, the church you've chosen. So these churches are actually reflecting the values of suburbia. And what I say in the book 
is, hey, wake up and listen. Maybe what Austin, Portland, Santa Cruz, Ithaca, Asheville, you name it, so many cities which are doing the kind of weird cities kind of thing. Maybe what they're saying to us is we figured out suburban kids now, adults and young adults actually want to want to live closely to other people they actually want to create a sense of community and neighborhood they want to know their neighbors they want to be able to walk to the local store they want to know where this food was grown they want to be committed to kind of a, a sense of justice a sense of community they want to celebrate the arts including public art and music and, and so on and so forth so all that to say it's not like austin's got it perfect let's go do that it's that they figured something out and when I think about all of that, I think, how on earth could we possibly claim that the values of the gospel are privacy and consumerism and materialism? And yet we could quite easily claim that what we find in scripture is an affirmation of social justice, of reconciliation, of community. And so I'm saying that's weird. Like, if, if that's the kind of weirdness that Austin or Portland are talking about, actually, I think that they're kind of sniffing the aroma of the gospel or the hearing a kind of a strain of music that actually is biblical. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're Christian cities. I'm saying that they're intuiting something and young adults are flocking to those towns because that's what they want. And it's what we ought to have been about all along. Yeah. So how do we make that shift? How do, how do you encourage churches and individuals to start making that shift to becoming weird? Yeah, well, I say that if, if what I said earlier, that when you put Christ at the center of who you are, that pushes you off center, yeah. then you would have to conclude that we've got something wrong with our discipleship. If we're mm -hmm. discipling people to remain committed to individualism, consumerism, privacy, with a bit of Jesus kind of bolted on the side, then we haven't actually done our job as as disciples that actually the renewal of the mind that paul talks about this kind of re renewal of outlook this whole new perspective where we see a whole world through the prism or the lens of the gospel that is with christ at the center through that we observe our world then i think if if we do that right and we do that as Paul anticipates we will, you're going to create a whole bunch of off-center people. Uh, off-center in the sense that they're going to be like devoted to justice, to the poor, to opening their home to the homeless, to to speaking up for the refugee, to practicing sustainable lifestyle, to being committed to the earth, to like loving the planet, to caring for the outsider. I mean, you can't be discipled in the way of Jesus and not end up looking like Jesus. I wrote a book with Alan Hirsch actually called Re-Jesus. And it was like basically like, hold on, let's not just churchify people. Let's just Jesusify them. Like, yeah. <laughs> what, what, does it, what does it look like to live like that today? Now, you know, yeah, and, and, and I'm saying, well, if Jesus ended up in your church, in your neighborhood, he would be the weird guy. Mm -hmm. he'd, be the, he'd be the outsider. Like, go, go follow that. Right. Yeah, so, go ahead. No, okay. So you talk about that in the book, that we have, we're all called to be this level of weird, right, that you're talking about. That's kind of the journey that we're on. But there's also people who are gifted that way. You know, they're just born a little bit weird, a little bit misfit, a little bit out-of-the-box thinkers. And they're really a gift to us that God has given us. But in large part, we as the church have kind of closed our doors to them. How do we begin to change that and make room for those who see things differently? Well, yeah, I th yeah, that's exactly what I say in the book, that there are some people who are just somehow supernaturally gifted to be like 
weird. Yeah. And uh, and like any group that demands conformity, the church kind of pushes those to the edge and eventually they leave. They often kind of leave and start their own ministries or they join parachurch agencies of some kind and they're kind of lost to the church. But but I also say that leadership is like really key. And if uh, if leaders who themselves might not be kind of naturally, so to speak, weird, naturally eccentric, if they can be bold enough to create space in which the weird are able to flourish in our churches, their example actually starts to transform others. So there's that famous YouTube clip about the guy who's dancing on the hillside. Do you remember that? Yes, and then, yeah. yeah then two, two others join him and then a few more. And, then, and it's kind of like, okay, there's always that one guy and maybe a couple of others. But it's when the leader of the church, for example, or leaders who may not be perceived as being eccentric, kind of join in that dance, actually it kind of opens the floodgates. It kind of normalizes the weird, if you like. Yeah. It creates the space in which it can flourish. So I tell a bunch of stories in the book about people, you know, like like Chuck Smith and others who didn't seem that weird in their kind of style and personality. But they knew the power of weed and they created spaces in which it could flourish. So speaking of stories, is there a church that maybe, or church leadership that, that you've seen who is walking this track, right? They're walking this attractional model, comfort, safety, privacy, and they decided collectively to take the turn and they said, okay, let's be weird and let's make this shift. Have you seen that? You maybe have a story or example, or maybe it's just you're seeing it in multiple churches. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, well, it's not usually the space I operate in in terms of like more conventional churches looking to kind of shift and change. Actually, speaking of Alan Hirsch as we were before, that is his kind of zone. So he tends to work with more traditional churches and help them through a process of change. The ones I tend to work with are kind of church planters, people who are launching kind of something weird from the beginning, or those who've come out of a more traditional kind of setup uh, and and catalyzed kind of missional change. So I always direct people to my favorite church. If I lived in America and I could find some way to move to uh, Tampa, Florida, I would I would belong to a church called underground in Tampa and uh, I mean these were people who worked with InnoVarsity campus ministry and a bunch of them just really sensed they were leading kids to Christ but like they were all dropping out as they ended up in normal churches and so they started to think should we start a church how should we deal with this and so they did a very weird thing like a, a whole bunch of them 20 or something of them moved to the Philippines and lived in a slum for six months together just to seek God and to find out, like, what should we do and what should our priorities be and what should what does the mission of God look like? And then they all came back and they started this community in Tampa. And, like, quite literally, like, you have to be a missionary to belong at it. So they do have a weekly gathering, but it is kind of underground. They move venues sort of fairly regularly. It's not, like, advertised, come along on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and see it. Uh, the only way you can join it is, is if you either launch or join an existing micro church, and they have scores of micro churches. They have guys just running up like a beer and Bible discussion group in the local pub, but they have a ministry which trains like doulas or midwives for single mothers to support them through mm -hmm. childbirth and then parenting. Uh, they have like a 
a ministry to middle school girl basketballers. They have a you know ministry or a mission uh, to homeless people, uh, to ex-offenders. Uh, you, you name it. It's like if anyone wants to Google like Tampa Underground and you look at their micro churches, there is just scores after score after score of very focused missional micro churches. So you either start one of those or you join one, and then their gathering is all of those people come together. Nice. And I, I've been at their gathering, and I've got to tell you, you can feel mm. what it's like to be in a room full of hardcore missionaries mm. as opposed to being in a room full of people who are like, hold on, what day is it again? Oh, yes, yeah, Sunday, I better go to church. Um, that there's a difference between being a missional church and being an, an audience. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, they are astonishing, these people. Uh, they're now kind of launching out around the United States and in Ireland and maybe other places as well. So they kind of really cracked this code on the whole missional thing. It's kind of like mission isn't kind of led by central command. So our mission committee will design all the missional stuff you might want to choose to be involved in. They're basically saying, no, there are so many needs in Tampa. Go meet one. We'll coach you. We'll equip you. We'll fund it if it needs money. And then uh, our gathering together is just the overflow of all the, the magic and beauty and joy of people who've given their lives to serving others, in some cases in really difficult and challenging kind of circumstances. So, I mean, I just think they're fantastic. I just, mm. I love them. So that's a genuinely missional church. I don't just talk it. Like, you have to do it. Yeah, love it. Awesome. So good. All right, so so this whole concept of being weird, I mean, ultimately, Jesus, some of the people grasped this. He was the ultimate weirdo. This guy and what he did, he was the disruptor and walked in and shifted things and even flipped tables and the whole thing. And I think sometimes we, the whole safety, comfort, all that, especially those that live in the suburbs, like what are some habits that we can practically embrace to help us live this out in our own lives no matter what context if we're urban if we're suburban and we really want to live this thing out and be a weirdo i mean uh it's a good question because i think i really think that that's what our churches are crying out for because i think that they hear the ideas and the ideas yeah. are like yeah okay be missional yeah. go serve other people you know do good stuff be committed to justice people are kind of getting that that's that talk is around quite a bit but what do I actually do tomorrow? Like, how do I yeah. do that differently? Yeah. And so I do really commend this strongly. Like in a previous book I wrote called Surprise the World, I just say, you know, we have to develop in our communities rhythms of life, sets right. of habits that actually help foster the, the weird or foster the, the missional. And the fact is already all churches have habits. Like, they expect you to habitually come to church every Sunday or they expect you to tithe. They expect you to be part of a, a, a midweek group. You know, there's, there's had, there's rhythms. It's like, this is wrong with us. Like, like rhythm your life in these ways. My concern is all of those habits, tithing, attending, worshiping, all of them connect us more deeply to each other as Christians and would connect us more with God if we do them right. But you name me a regular, required, habitual Christian behavior that propels people into the world, and you can't find one. Churches do stuff that sends people into the world, 
but they're kind of optional. They're for the, you know, the, the really hardy souls that decide they want to sign up for it. But everyone, everyone's meant to attend every Sunday. Everyone's meant to, like, tithe. Everyone's meant to pray. Like, these are the things that everyone's meant to do. And all I'm saying is find some habits that everyone's meant to do that not only connect us with each other, because that's important, and connect us more deeply with God, because that's important, but which also propel us to connect more deeply with our community around us. And so a church that I planted years ago, we developed these basic habits. One was you had to uh, bless three people every week, one of whom was a member of our church, one of whom had to be an unbeliever in our neighborhood, third one could be from either category. Uh, secondly, you had to eat with three people every week, one of whom was a member of our church, one of whom was an unbeliever, third one could be from either category. Now, I'm going to stop there, because if you could just like Obi-Wan Kenobi, like move your hand over your congregation and say, you will bless three people every week, you will eat with three people every week, and they all, all nod, yeah, we will. We will. If you could just do that, which is far easier said than done, but if you could just do that, it would turn your church upside down. Down. because eating and blessing has an incredible reciprocal effect when people bless you with a gift or a word or they do a favor for you uh, you are looking for ways to pay that back in some way but when people eat with you you sit at their table you eat their food you're always thinking hey we've got to get these people over to our place and this starts to ricochet around the faith community but then around the neighborhood as well I honestly I cannot tell you the impact that just that would have but then there are three three others we bless three people eat with three people we listen uh, to the Holy Spirit I absolutely convinced that when you engage meaningfully in society as a weird one uh, you're going to be put in all sorts of situations of like compromise or question or uncertainty how are you going to know what to say when to say when to leave how long to be there or oh, there's no rules on these kinds of things uh, unless you are really in touch with the Holy Spirit and and the Spirit's promptings the fourth one is you're going to learn Jesus. So, like, if Jesus is the ultimate weirdo and we want people to be weird, I want you to read the Gospels over and over and over. I want you to learn Christ. I want you to fully understand who he is, what he said, why he said it, why he came, what he was doing. I don't just want you to know Jesus' greatest hits, like, you know, his birth, his death, a few parables, a couple of miracles. It's not good enough. I want you to have the whole. I want you to be marinated in mm -hmm. the Gospels of Jesus. And then the, the fifth one is that you're going to journal all the ways that you've been sent into the world to mirror the work of God in this world. So it's bless, eat, listen, learn, sent, B-E-L-L-S. So it's like the bells rhythm is what we called it. And as I said, I unpack I all of that in a book called Surprise the World. But but I, I just want to reiterate, you don't have to do those things. Like, we did we did those things. They got us eating with each other. They got us practicing generosity, hospitality. We became more connected to the Holy Spirit. We learned and started to shape our lives more around Jesus. And by journaling, we saw ourselves as sent ones, as missionaries. But if you can find a better set of rhythms, if you can find a better set of, of, of practices that mobilize, like really rhythmically mobilize people into the world like do those but don't just give people a sermon or a, a bit of a hey go be missional because they don't know what to do they just i mean why would they they why would they they have busy lives they they go to work they're raising kids all that kind of jazz so help foster rhythms it's more likely then to unleash the values that you're wanting to see that's so good. Such an important conversation. Thank you so much for these, these incredible books that you're writing and for being here with us today to share it. 
Um, we like to close out the show by asking the same three questions to every guest that we have on. Are you ready? Uh, sure. <laughs> All right. Edge of your seat. Huh? Edge of your seat. All right. They go a little like this. What's a book that's changed your life? What's a habit that's changed your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? So what's a book that's changed your life? As I look behind you and I see a billion books on shelves. <laughs> to you pick know, one. you got to get one. Yeah, a student walked into my office once and he said, oh my gosh, he said, all these words are in your head. <laughs> and I was like, it's like, uh, yeah. don't really, I mean, I've read them, but I'm not sure all those cool, words are cool, still cool. in my yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I think a book that like really, really set me free many years ago is by David Bosch called Witness to the World. So I would say that or Foolishness to the Greeks by Leslie Newbigin. Uh, I also love like Walter Brueggemann. So his book Finally Comes the Poet, which is actually about kind of the weird Yahweh. He's an Old Testament professor. So I'd, I know you just said one book, but I'd say those <laughs> so you three. cheated. It's all right. You cheated. Most you. people it's cheat. Fine. It's yeah. fine. It's good. All right. Second one. What's a habit that's changed your life? Uh, opening my table, I think. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think back in the day, I used to eat like a lot of people do. It was just like putting f fuel in a car. So it's like, yeah, eating. Eating is just like keeping me alive. So I'd eat fast. I'd eat in a car, or I'd eat standing up, or walking, or whatever. But it's like, actually, the habit of discovering the table and inviting people to that table. Um, actually, it's, I think it's the central practice that Christians are called to. I mean, Jesus said, like, here's what I want you to do to remember me by. When you're eating with people, break bread and drink wine and recall my sacrifice. So uh, I think it's our thing more than singing or listening to sermons are. I'm nothing wrong with those things, I guess. But you, you got to eat like three times a day anyway. Just do it at a table with other people. It's so good. Yeah. So good. All right. And what advice would you give to the younger Mike? Uh, I'd just tell him to calm down and not be quite so obnoxious, you know. I'd, <laughs> I'd say, it's like, still, still go on that journey and like discover all those things and, yeah, do that and be passionate and all of that. But people go on the journey at different pace, and uh, I'd say be passionate. I mean, I think I think I'm like this now. Like, I'm still passionate and energetic about the ideas that are kind of shaping me. But there's a there's more room for grace, and um, you know I'm an old guy now, so it's like I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a fatherly kind of thing. So I, I try to say to the twenty something year old me, like just cajole people into this journey, don't bludgeon them into it. Mm. That's so good. So good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Where where can people look up your books, find you, all that stuff? Uh, well, my website is mikefrost.net, but you know the books are like Amazon and Christian books and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Great. thank you again for who hey. you are and what you do, man. You're, you're making a huge impact in our life and so many others. Actually, I've really enjoyed this conversation, guys. So thanks for giving me the chance to have it. Oh, what a great conversation. We love Mike. We hope that you guys enjoyed it today. And we hope that you'll start talking about some of the things that Mike brought up today within your family and within your church communities. Um, and maybe start, I know for me, I'm going to start working on those bells for sure. I'm going to start thinking about how I can bless others, opening up our table, bringing people around us. So many great tips that he shared on how to live on mission, not just my mission, but the mission of God in the world around me. Yep. So good. Such a great episode. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we hope this episode blessed you and we would love to hear from you. 
please take a minute, leave a review on iTunes, hit us up on our website, letsliveitwell.com, and you can find us, of course, on all the social medias out there. We love hearing how these conversations are speaking to you and speaking to your heart and ultimately helping you live your life on mission. And as always, you can find all the info for today's episode, all the books and links mentioned in our show notes and over at our website, letsliveitwell.com. Well, that's a wrap for episode 46 that came to us from the future all the way from (laughs) Australia. So we're going to close it out like we do every single time. Remember, you only get one life. Live Live it well. well.